Welcome to this episode of the Bell Education Podcast with me, Rebecca Stead, and... Me, Sam Bufton. Ably assisted by our producer, Laura. Welcome to the Bell Education Podcast. Uh, today's very special guest recording in our London school is Jodie Gray, the Chief Executive of English UK. Hello, Jodie. Hi there. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for coming. It's our pleasure. Now, you've had a rather interesting beginning to your tenure... I have. Um, I have. Uh, how's that been for you? It has been interesting. Um, so I started as the interim chief executive on the 1st of February uh, 2020 um, and then um, became took on the permanent role in November. So I think just a few weeks later, the whole world turned on its head and, and everything changed. So it has been a bit of a baptism of fire, but in some ways has been... Um, there have been some positives and the way that the team have pulled together, the way the industry has pulled together during the time and I think the way that English UK has really come into its own um, and supported members um, during the pandemic um, and been a really big focus for the industry um, has been a positive um, and, and has really motivated me. Have you found more or less engagement with English UK from its, from its membership and from the industry in general during, during the crisis? Um, definitely more. I mean, I think that the way members have pulled together has been amazing. Just in that initial period, I remember thinking back to, um, you know, when this all started happening in late February, early March, and we started hearing about this virus from China, and then student groups started to cancel, um, and then it went to Italy, and there was more discussion about cancellations. There was just this need for information and someone to tell people, like, what is happening? Um, and we didn't have the answers, of course, but um, we started to connect with officials in the government, try to find answers where we could. And um, I think that initial, and then things have continued from that initial moment. There was this, the, the phone never stopped ringing. We started doing the weekly Q&As. Um, and there was just a real sense that um, the industry needed help and we had to give that help um, and support people through the crisis and and you know, at that beginning time, it was just also confusing, like what was going to happen next. I think some people thought, you know, we were going to, it was going to be a, a few months thing and by the summer it would all be over and we would be okay. Um, and as that became clear that that wasn't going to be the case and we were in it for the long haul, we, we, we sort of reinvented our strategy. We were in the last year at that point of a three-year strategy and I'd just taken over at the very end of it. And we, we, we started, we put in place a response and recovery strategy and it was just all about, well, it was crisis management, firefighting. Um, but certainly um, the level of engagement has been incredible. The number of people turning up to webinars, to weekly Q&As, um, to our online conferences um, has been higher than we've ever seen before. And I think that um, English UK has, has been really pivotal. Um, and especially if you're a, you know, you're a member centre that essentially has done very little business since March 2020, last year, um, then having an association, having that connection with your peers who are probably in the same situation, experiencing the same kind of devastation, um, is a real lifeline. And I feel really proud that we were able to provide that. Yeah, I think that's... Um kind of part of what happens isn't it you, you sort of think it's your fault or how is it happening to you and the, the ability to reach out to other people who are also very committed and very good at what they do and, and they're still having the same effects on them can give you a kind of a collective sense of of at least that that you're not doing anything worse than anyone else absolutely I think it 
it could it was a really and still is to some extent really isolating time you know like people in our industry tend to be very busy you know you're either dealing with students and agents in your centres and constantly dealing with issues that come up on a day-to-day, on a weekly basis, or you're going out meeting agents, meeting people overseas, trying to um, drive out new business for the future. Like it's very much, uh, you're constantly on the go and you're constantly meeting people all of the time. And to suddenly have that all taken away and disappear, um, and, I, and it, to go online, be behind a screen, or just disappear completely, I think it was a really isolating time and um, we felt that really keenly in English UK and that we needed to try to um, be that um, channel through which um, people in the industry could connect with each other. When was the moment, can you remember the moment when you thought, hang on, this is going to be a real issue when the pandemic was first done? Because I remember as an employee of a school and I remember thinking at first oh, this isn't going to come, this will be all right. It's not going to come to the UK. And I guess it's because you convince yourself, don't you? You're trying to protect yourself. And we were told it wouldn't come to the UK. Yeah, we were told it wouldn't. So it all seemed, it's not, and then it was getting closer and closer. But yeah, surely now it'll be okay here. Yeah, And obviously I mean, school owners really panic. Absolutely. Because their business is being so incredibly affected by it. So as an association, when was, when do you think you went, oh, hang on a minute, this is, this is something really big? I think it all happened so quickly. Yeah. Like, I remember, um, I think it was, actually, I remember the exact date. On the, I remember being on the 6th of March, I was at a festival, actually. It was in the Roundhouse in Camden. It was the 6th Music Festival. And I had no concept that maybe that wasn't a very good idea or a very good thing to do. Right? It was packed. Um, it was a weekend thing. It was absolutely full. Anyone who's been in there, there's, like, no ventilation. It's, it, was, it was, and we knew at that point that things were looking bad in Italy, I think we also knew by that point that um, programmes that we've been talking about just a few weeks earlier, like the Tempest Foundation programme from Hungary, was being um, postponed at that, until, until the following year. So there had already been bad news. But even then, the idea to me that going out in central London and spending six hours in a packed you know, gig venue... Was, not, was, was, a, was a pretty bad idea. I mean, I didn't get COVID, luckily, but I'm sure many people did. I mean, that must have been the ultimate super-spreading festival uh, at that point in London. But um, I, it, it hadn't crossed my mind that that was going to be a problem. And then if you think about that, that was 6th of March, 20th of March, when, um, um, when the final day that we told schools to stop teaching face-to-face. I mean, it was literally a few weeks later. And I remember during that week, it just kept getting worse and worse. At the beginning of the week, there was, like, talk of maybe they're going to close the schools down, the mainstream schools. And we were thinking, what are we going to do about that? And um, we were meeting with government officials and saying, well, if you are going to close mainstream schools, what does that mean for um, private education, the private English language teaching section And there was never really an answer, was there? There was never we an answer. actually mandated ever to close. There was never an answer. And it, that, that just goes to the fact that the government was just obviously chasing its tail at the time as well. They didn't really know. Um, and then it became clear in the middle of that week that that was what we were going to have to do. Um, and um, obviously at English UK we were having loads of meetings, the board was meeting regularly, I was talking constantly to the chair about what we were going to have to do, and it became clear that we were going into a lockdown situation, and that there wasn't really going to be any other option, and we had to do what was right for um, the safety of, of staff and students in, you know, in, in the ELT sector, whether the government was going to mandate it or not, we were going to have to deal with whatever that meant afterwards, um, and that's when we um, told schools to close. And I remember after that having a conversation with the chair, she's been, I can't believe that we've just done that. Like, you can't, it, 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 now it feels 
like well of course we had to but at the time it was like well it's crazy to do this like it's it's such a big call and such a big step and it would never have happened before would it never no completely unprecedented do you think there was maybe a sense of relief with schools that then when you said you need to close because schools are small businesses and obviously we're really as a lot of businesses we're really grappling with what do we do here because if we if we close and we don't have an income we can't pay our well, staff we can't do these things yeah so there you was know, a possibility of staying open yes, yeah, yeah you know or do we keep keep going because we need to keep everybody afloat and it must have been a real struggle because you want to keep everybody safe but then obviously you need to, your business and livelihood to survive and there so, was no furlough mentioned at no, at that time, stage, no, it wasn't. That came later. That, that came like later. A few days later, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, all of that came. Yeah, that came the following week. Um, so, yeah, I think that there probably was people wanted some guidance and they wanted to do what was right and what other people were doing as well. They don't. You don't want to be the outlier in that kind of situation. Yeah. And so, and, and again, I think that's when some like an association comes into its own that we can provide that kind of guidance. Um, and yeah, I think that. Um, in the end, everybody working in the sector want, wanted to do the right thing in that situation. And safety has to be, and well-being have to be the number one priority. Um, and that's what came first for everybody. I mean, we didn't have, everybody followed the guidance, or the vast majority of people did at the time. Obviously, there's a few um, exceptions where people were having to teach out certain courses. Um, and, and indeed, there were amazing stories of members just, I mean, above and beyond doesn't even cover it, like going to exceptional lengths to help students out in that moment. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone innovated incredibly quickly to continue teaching online where they could. But I mean, I heard stories of people taking students into their own homes, you know, who couldn't, who just couldn't leave because flights were stopping, borders were closing down. um, And and just just incredible stories of, of people helping students and making sure that they were kept safe. In that, in that, at that time, um, and yeah, I think the industry did an amazing job, um, and and the, and the kind of innovations that happened very quickly in terms of taking um, teaching online. Obviously, many people had online teaching provision already, but many didn't, and I think it was an enormously steep learning curve. But um, the industry did an incredible job, um, and um, that kind of that kind of innovation and that ability to adapt to the to the changing circumstances so quickly. It just shows the strength um, that the industry does have um, and the fact that we can essentially deal with anything, which has continued, you know, like, I mean, it's been an absolutely devastating and horrific um, 18-month period, but the fact that so many centres are still going is incredible. And um, when we talk to the government and they talk about viable businesses and we have to you know, we're going to support viable businesses. Maybe your business is gone now, now but things have changed. And you're like, actually, no, because these business, the strength of these businesses beforehand, and, 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 that, and a lot of it comes down to, I think, people's dedication to what they do, and their commitment to English language teaching um, has meant that um, they have struggled but, and ultimately survived this far, which, if you think about it, essentially the tap was just turned off on the student business in March 2020 and hasn't really been turned back on again. And, and yet we are looking at the vast majority of centres having survived this far. That's the real spirit of the industry though, isn't it? It's not, I always say that it is quite a special and unique industry that we're in. You Absolutely. Know, everybody truly cares, mm. you know, and if you have a school, it is like a family, isn't it? So you care it for is. your students and your staff and everybody was so determined to 
keep their centres open and keep it keep it going. Do you have yeah. any idea how many at this stage didn't make it? At the moment, among the English UK members, um, the number of people who've actually closed permanently is about 15%, one five, um, which given that our impact reporting for 2020 shows that student week, student volume dropped by 80%, is pretty good going. And among those, I know that there are some that will try to reopen, you know, that some, many of them were um, centres within groups and chains where they consolidated, which obviously makes very good sense given what's happening, and that they will attempt to reopen those locations in the future. Um, others were small businesses that just couldn't make it through, but, um, but still want to try to come back um, again. And, you know, the vast majority have handled it as well as they possibly could under the most awful circumstances. And, and that's a lot of what English UK has done. Like we have spoken to school owners who have just not been able to go on and help them through. And, and their biggest, you know, the, the most important thing for them is that they want to do, they want to wrap up their business in, in the best way they can and make sure that people are as far as possible not left out of pocket. And I think that that just, yeah, speaks to the kind of, um, the kind of people that generally work in the ELT sector. And what about the landscape now? We're you know, 18 months on. It's the end of August 2021. What is the landscape amongst the English UK membership? So I think what we're seeing, and we keep seeing, we're actually seeing new members joining, which is quite exciting. Um, we have three actually joined this month. Um, three schools that recently went through accreditation. Um, they were outside membership before. They've seen... I suppose the benefits of being in an association, and also the 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 rule, the immigration rule changes that mean you have to be accredited in order to bring in students, has meant that um, centres that previously didn't go through the accreditation process for whatever reason have had to do so. And then obviously we only allow accredited centres to join English UK, so that's been really exciting. I think that at this point there is still a lot of uncertainty, though. Um, we are not looking at. Um, a situation where market recovery is going to happen. There's going to be a date or a point at which after that everything just returns to normal. I think sometimes I still think that way. I think everybody does. You think, well, by this month, at this point, whatever that month might be, and that month keeps moving down the road, it will all just be back to normal. I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, We've seen that there have been some, um, some positive news, I think, coming out of... Um, the change for Europeans being able to travel here without quarantine if you're vaccinated or you're under 18. But that hasn't led to a deluge of bookings, you know, as far as I know, from what I, from what I can gather from speaking to members. Sure, there's been some uptick or interest from some markets. Um, but I think most people are seeing small numbers of students and a, and a big mixture of students from different markets. There's no one trend, like, oh, this market's returning really strong or not these markets. There's a, just a kind of mix of students, for whatever reason, have felt confident to travel. Um, obviously, the changes um, to quarantine regulations for Europeans um, hopefully will lead to some more positive movement from that region through the autumn. But at the same time, there are other parts of the world where we're seeing high numbers of COVID at the moment. Um, you know, we, we had a meeting recently with British Council in China, and I think China is going to take a very long time to come back as a market um, because of quarantine. Especially and re- for young learners. Absolutely. Um, and um, 
it's you know it's that 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 probably isn't going to return at all next year if if we're honest. And um, there's also very high numbers in parts of other um, other parts of Southeast Asia at the moment, obviously in Latin America too. Um, so I think that it's not going to be a situation where we get to that golden date and everything goes back to normal. There's going to be very bumpy ride with different markets returning at different times and then possibly returning and then something happens and they go backwards a bit and they, and they make progress again. That's what it's going to look like. I think the two key biggest bumps in the road are the end of furlough yeah. and next summer. Yeah. If, if, you can, if you can get through the end of furlough and afford to pay staff full time, um, the next key thing is the summer. If next summer isn't of a of a sensible size, you know, if there isn't um, a busy enough summer next year, then um, I, I think you really worry in general for for how people can can carry on at certainly at the size they are. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you're abs- those two clefs up. You're absolutely right, and I think it's 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 the uncertainty that is very difficult because. Uh, my business owners will be making decisions. We're doing the same thing at English UK, English UK executive team, like about when furlough ends versus when things start to pick up. How much longer do we need to wait for that to happen? And there is a massive amount of uncertainty. Obviously, we're heading into the winter in the Northern Hemisphere um, and it's, it's difficult to say. Um, so I think that is going to cause some issues um, and we probably sadly will see more centres closing during the autumn. Um, yeah, it's 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 not over by a long shot, um, and and I think that's um, you know it's important for English UK to continue to be here, and continue lobbying the government for support for targeted support where we can. And there's very uh, we've identified very little appetite from anywhere in government to continue the furlough scheme as it stands, but um, I you know there is a possibility that there might be continued targeted support for industries that are impacted by COVID-19 going forward. The issue with them, as far as I can see it, with the government working with industries is that this industry doesn't seem to fit into any of their into any of their nice pockets at all. So they may help travel, but are we travel? They may help education, but are we education? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been one of our problems um, throughout all of this. I mean, in many ways, in the past, our lobbying um, has totally focused on the Home Office. It's always been about visa issues, and that's still a really important ish, um, you know, area for us to lobby on, particularly in the wake of Brexit and the end of freedom of movement. We haven't really had to have relationships with um, other government departments, particularly like Treasury or Bays, which is the, the, the Department of Business, or MHCLG, which is the Department for Local Government. But because of the way in which the government has um, administered its COVID-19 support, we've had to have or build relationships with those departments, um, and that, uh, but essentially overnight, and that hasn't been particularly easy. We've always had a very strong relationship and, and had really good support from the Department for International Trade, and they've been amazing, um, but they're not central to COVID-19 response. Um, and so it has been um, difficult in terms of making sure that we've got those connections and those links and and also with the department for health and social and social care um, when it comes to COVID-19 restrictions and regulations but I think um, us being difficult to define is both a, a massive strength 
and 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 a weakness and and that's that that's also in terms of the kind of coverage and traction we get in media as well because it's hard you can't really sum up what we do in a sentence you know that we have a range of different types of students coming for different types of courses for different reasons we have different types of providers and that's what um, gives the industry great strength um, it's helped us sometimes in certain areas when it comes to lobbying um, but also not being able to sum us up um, makes us harder for people to understand and in the end politicians have to understand what you are so that they can understand what you do and equally um, the public have to understand what you are so that you get traction in terms of the media and in terms of campaigns and we're not that easy to sum up um, so um, those are areas that we've really had to work hard on in terms of the lobbying and building a campaign. We've had some successes um, and we're still fighting on several fronts. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast series, please drop us a line at podcast at bellenglish.com. I think obviously it's been a roller coaster, and English UK have done such a wonderful job of supporting the membership. Um, and I think as well, that's testament to you and your team because you're always so visible to everybody as well so that those members knew that they could pick up the phone and because obviously you just started as the CEO as well and somebody because you've been at English UK for a long time so everybody already knew who you were perhaps if somebody knew would come in they wouldn't have felt quite as comfortable or easy to be so open about what they were worried about and so I think that's um, really helped everybody as well to have such a familiar and supportive team. No, and that's really good to hear. And I think that's true. Like, um, we have a different style um, as a team, I think, of communicating the paths we have done in the past. Um, I, I hope that we, we come across as very approachable, and very open. Um, and I think really critically that it's that, it, that English UK is not some kind of um, authority um, um, that's tries to lay down rules or control and that I've always been really clear since I've been at English UK and I think that um, that's the kind of and I really want to make this clear as now the chief executive is that English UK is a, only exists because of, me, of its members like in fact obviously we have to have governance structures because you can't have 360 people making decisions that doesn't work and therefore we have structures whereby you can elect um, the trustees and then they make decisions on your behalf um, and then big decisions go to votes of all the members um, but um, English UK um, and the works for its members. We only do things if they're helpful for members. And as a group, there is a consensus that that's what you want us to do. Um, and the executive team work for the members. And I think that's never been more true than during this crisis. Um, we, we only, we're only here, we only have jobs because members have felt that as, if they come together as a collective, we can get more stuff done um, and, um, it, and it brings benefit to all. Um, I think that's, it's really important that we don't, for me, come across like, um, yeah, we're this authority that you have to somehow, um, the, the, the members have to abide by our rules. It's not our rules as English UK executive team. Those rules are set by the community um, that is the English UK membership. Um, and I think that's what's been a really pleasing part of the engagement that we were talking about before, that we've had so many more people being interested in joining various committees or groups or bodies where they can have a voice and they don't feel that stuff that English UK does is imposed upon them but actually that um, what English UK does is what the members want and um, there are various channels through which um, you can guide and mould that as a member. One thing you have got um, outside of 
that kind of pure delivering for memberships is Study World. Um, how's that looking for 2021? So it's great. I mean, we've got Study World Autumn coming up at the end of September um, online. Um, and then we have Study World Winter, Study World Spring coming up again at the um, beginning of 2022. And actually numbers for the autumn event are great, um, bigger than we've had for any other previous online events. Really good numbers for agents as well. I think... Um, We've tried to um, make the Study World event super affordable um, for members um, to enable as many people as possible to come. Um, And I think that has gone down very well and worked well. And the online format is, is, is working well too, I believe. And one thing that's important for us, because we're not an independent, we're not an independent commercial events organizer. We're an association, so it's just explaining, we work on behalf of the members. Um, and taking on big venue contracts would just be too much of a risk for for the association at this time, and um, that's why the the online format works well for everybody. Have you planned for any of those three to be? I know the first one isn't any of them to be face to face, or you're planning them all to be online. They will all have certainly be um, online or hybrid. There may be face to face elements. So in the I'm looking for a. a chink of light here yeah. <laughs> English UK predicts all over by the spring yeah. <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to I mean certainly though I mean even um, our study world autumn event um, we have a marketing conference attached to it which is face to face and very proving to be very popular um, so if you attend study world you get free tickets to the marketing 24th conference 24th of September yeah. yes oh. very good thank you I would have forgotten that date you're welcome <laughs> And um, really good programme, but also just critically brilliant to see people face-to-face. We had a members' conference face-to-face, or it was hybrid, you could attend online or, or in person, um, under, co- under venue restrictions. So we had very restricted numbers um, back in May, but really brilliant to see people. So good to see people. Um, now, of course, we don't have um, restrictions in terms of numbers, although we do a very large venue. Um, and um, plenty of space. We will obviously be keeping COVID-19 secure measures in place. We're asking people to show either proof of vaccination or lateral flow tests before they come, and um, so that everyone feels happy. Controversial. Are you asking them to show, or are you uh, saying entry only if they've been double vaccinated? No, we can take a lateral flow test either, so one or the other, Um, but we want to see proof of either. So, um, which I think is fair enough. Um, we want people to feel comfortable in the venue. It's very difficult. Um, the members' conference showed that. And I'm sure people know running um, language schools that it's very difficult in that kind of environment where you're like drinking coffee and eating pastries to wear a mask. And, and you want to be able to chat to people. Um, even though there's lots of space, people aren't going to stay very far apart. So we want people to feel comfortable. Mm. Um, we have a brilliant big venue, um, actually bigger than we thought, because our original venue is being used as a Nightingale court. It's one of the high court venues. And so um, the um, owner of that venue moved us to a bigger, posher one, so for free or for the same price. So um, that was quite a, a, um, a sort of um, a lucky for those who may not know, where is the new venue? It's County Hall. Oh, right. Um, so right near Waterloo. Um, and um, there will be the customary um, English UK drinking and drink recept- drinks reception afterwards. So um, that will be good fun. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so good to see people face to face. It really is. Online events have worked 
really well and we're obviously a national association with people all over the country quite literally and so um, the online events and training webinars that we do I think are amazing and that's making things very accessible for everybody but we want to have opportunities for people who want to um, to spend time with each other in person too. And so you've gone, you've decided to start doing, so you've got Study World Autumn, Study World Winter, Study World Spring. Where did this plan come from? Because that's not been there previously. No, it hasn't, absolutely. So previously we've had to, we've done one event a year. Um, Just the flexibility that doing online events brings means we can be more responsive. Um, You know, once you start going down a road of... Um, having to book out big venues and particularly organising these types of workshops and the way they operate is that also means booking lots of hotel bedrooms for agents um, which is you know a big liability um, for an association for a charity so not not having those um, liabilities means that we can be more responsive and do things more often Um, and we know that um, um, that marketers in the industry want to have various touch points with their agent partners Um, during the year um, and that we can provide those Um, online events don't have to you know it doesn't matter if they're over a particular size um, they can be uh, more focused um, and and we can um, arrange them at much shorter notice um, with much lower resource and put them into the calendar when they're needed so that's the plan and, and, and the whole way through this like everybody we've had to pivot and adapt and respond um, and this is the way we respond at the moment that's not to say that um, we won't be going back to or changing the format again but I think we have to um, look at what members want um, look at what agents want and respond accordingly without having um, I suppose that pressure of being a commercial events organiser where that's what we do um, we do organise events um, but um, but first and foremost, we're an association, um, um, an association of ELT centres. We're wanting to promote the UK ELT sector and we will do whatever is right um, for that. So the pandemic aside, what is the future for English UK? You started in February 2020 and you must have had some kind of idea of how you wanted to see the association go and then bam the pandemic hit and it was you couldn't do that you had to obviously be flexible and divert your attention so what is the future for for English UK after all of this? I think that there's two things really like one is that I wanted I want I think it's really important that we keep that member engagement Um, and that's something that we'd already planned um, before the pandemic and then actually we, we were saying earlier we've got this great member engagement silver lining never would have planned it this way but before the pandemic started we had this um, plan to visit every single member center over a period of time and not just um, the usual the usual members of the executive team that you see out on the road but every single member of the team um, because obviously we have different expertise within the team so we have you know um, someone who is our, our communications manager and, and comes from that kind of background but every single person needs to understand the industry and I was really I feel that's really important because we are all in the end working for members and you need to understand where they're coming from and if you can't and many of us have worked in language schools I started out working in a language school so when someone calls me up and has a question I can picture you know 
the, the kind of place they might be sitting in, the kind of issues that they're dealing with that week, because I've been there. I think it's really important that we can all um, feel that empathy um, with members who are essentially our employers and certainly our customers. Um, and so the idea was that we would visit every single member centre. And of course, that, st- that stopped. In fact, we just started it just as things, um, just as the pandemic hit last spring. And we really want to get back to that um, and really understand what members want and need and where they're coming from. Um, and then it all starts from there. Um, so I think that's important. Um, the other thing that has come out of the pandemic that is also something that we have been thinking about for a while is that we um, have never had, because of the reasons we've spoken about before, um, had one kind of um, brand or, or voice or set of messaging that we have used on a national level to promote the UK ELT sector. So the British Council has some responsibility there and has done some work. We do our own thing as English UK, um, Department for International Trade or the government um, have, have um, occasionally do some, some, some work there too. But in terms of bringing it all together and having a more strategic approach to promoting the UK's ELT sector has always been something that I've thought we could do better. I was seconded to the Department for International Trade a few years ago as the English language teaching specialist. And that, for me, um, came across really strongly that this was a weakness for the UK when we compare ourselves to some of our big competitors, where they just have a really clear um, strategy, a really clear sense of this department is in charge of this at government level, a really clear sense of how English language teaching fits within other bits of international education, and then what the story is when you're setting that out to an international market, whether that's to, um, you know, an overseas government that's looking for a big training solution on a grand scale, or a commercial partner, or in terms of student recruitment, just a really clear idea. We have quite a fragmented approach in the UK. In, in the UK. Um, things like the Study UK campaign are very focused on HE and university students and English language is kind of mentioned um, as an aside. But it's not really clear how it all fits together, um, I think, for an overseas audience. And I think that that um, has, is an issue. Um, and at the same time, regardless of the pandemic, which has brought about a whole load of complexities um, and, and a load of information that we need to communicate to the market. We've had Brexit, um, and which um, has meant that um, there have been big changes um, for our biggest source market. 40% of students who study English in the UK come from Europe, and we've had a big change there. So um, uh, we have launched this um, campaign called the English with Confidence campaign, which at the moment is focused on... Um, delivering information and reassuring messages, particularly around COVID, um, accessing the UK, border restrictions and changes to the immigration system. But certainly the idea is that this campaign, which has been delivered in partnership between English UK and the British Council and Department for International Trade, is um, a campaign that um, will last beyond COVID um, and, it, and will be a campaign through which we can really speak with that one voice. And, and make sure that we're communicating uh, about the UK's ELT sector together with our big government partners um, and that we can um, improve access to opportunities overseas for, um, for the UK ELT sector and for English UK members. So that was something that we were planning 
um, to do better on before the pandemic. And then the pandemic has come along, it's changed its focus a little bit, but certainly something that um, will hopefully um, last beyond the two years that we've already planned for it um, as this journey, as a campaign, that it will go on and be a legacy um, that will be really beneficial. To keep up to date with our podcast series, you can follow us on social media at Bell Education Podcast. And how about your anti-racism plan? This is a new um, issue as well that you've just brought up to the members. So what? why now? What was the, the thought behind that and why have you decided now to launch it? So last summer, um, when after the murder of George Floyd and... Um, um, all the protests that happened around the world and the discussion in the media and the press and social media and online happened. We felt that we had to, or uh, we should um, do something. So at that time, we, we put out a fairly simple statement and, and pledged to look at this in more detail. Um, and it's taken us a while, to be honest, to get to where we are now, which is where we've published um, um, an action plan. Um, and we've just closed our, um, our first diversity and, in, and um, inclusion survey. So it took us a while. And the reason why is because it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't have any expertise in the area. I, I certainly don't feel like an expert. Um, I felt strongly that this is something that the ELT industry should be thinking about, that we should lead. Um, that this industry that I'm so proud of, that I know so well, that is an industry of people who, um, you know, brilliant communicators internationally, that give these amazing opportunities to international students to pursue their dreams, that we, and, and an industry of educators, that we should be looking at this. But I didn't really know how. And it's still something that I struggle with. It's still something I feel quite uncomfortable about sometimes. I think that's something that we should all be honest about, that um, using the right language, not offending anybody, um, doing what's right, um, none of that is easy. So it took us a while. We've um, really thought about it. Um, we thought about what this action plan should be and, and how to look at it. And the way we're looking at it, and the plan is on our website for anyone who wants to read it, is um, we're looking at it in kind of three concentric circles. So we've started out looking at English UK as an organisation. So the team that I lead and um, the the kind of wider family, so the boards, the committees, the people who work for us in a loose sense, like trainers, speakers at our conferences. And then the next circle is the members um, and um, and, and looking at the membership and what the membership um, needs from this, how the membership can get involved in this. And then the, the, the bigger circle is the industry and, and, and I suppose connected to that, the wider kind of international education forest for the, in the UK. Um, and it's very much, when you read the plan, is um, English UK, English UK, we see our role is to kind of provide guidance and to provide an opportunity for the membership to take this forward. But it absolutely isn't a case of uh, us imposing ideas or imposing new rules, um, it has to come from the membership. Um, we, we're providing the platform, the channel, the opportunity, but what happens next has to come from the membership, which is why we started with the survey, which is all about listening, what people's views are. And then the next step from that is to convene a, an action group of members. 
um, who will think about what the survey findings mean and what we do next. Um, and I think the reason why it's so important that any changes come from the membership is that otherwise it just will be pointless. Um, for it to be sustainable and meaningful, it has to be um, the members looking at um, the various areas um, and thinking what we should do in them. And um, I think that ultimately what might come out of this um, to begin with in the, in the kind of first steps, and clearly it's going to be an incremental process, going to be small steps that we're going to take, um, will probably will be some kind of some guidance maybe in the English UK rules that will help members to understand what's expected of them. Um, I think there'll be issues that might be looked at um, will include things like the way that we present and talk about the UK, um, looking at um, the makeup of the sector, um, our recruitment, our diversity, um, how we improve that, um, how we make progress in that area. Um, why we are or we are not diverse. The survey will tell us some more there. Um, looking at um, the way we represent the UK um, in our classrooms and our textbooks and our teaching um, and, um, and also um, what um, people working in the industry can do if they come across instances where um, of, of racism or um, discrimination and guidance on how to handle those situations um, but all of that will come from um, members views um, delivered through this platform of the action group and what's been the response so far from members have you has it been a really positive response to this and did you have many people actually engage in the survey have they filled it out yeah, so we've had a really good response to the survey, which I'm pleased about, um, because it was not the easiest survey to I complete. did it, and it, yeah, it was, it was tricky. You yeah. had to really think. Absolutely. And sometimes I was complete, I was unsure. You absolutely, know, absolutely. And I'm the same. Um, I went through and, and we all did it in UK as well. And um, it wasn't easy. It took time. It made you think. Um, so I'm really pleased with the response rate. Um, and I think and we've had a lot of people volunteer to be on the action group, which is really, really good as well. So, so far, um, a really positive response. Also, some um, more measured responses, people saying, um, expressing concerns that, um, that we might be going to impose some kind of rule that's difficult to stick by. Um, and absolutely, that isn't the case. Um, you know, we have to, we're in, we're in association of English language teaching businesses. Those businesses need to operate in an incredibly difficult operating environment at the moment and not set to get much easier very soon. So all of that has to be taken into context. Whatever happens next has to be achievable, has to be workable. But that doesn't mean that we can't have those conversations. And I think that's the start. You know, you can have those conversations about people saying you know, people should be able to raise areas that they feel a bit uncomfortable about or that um, they feel we could do better in. It doesn't mean we're going to have the answer straight away, right? Like, that's clear. Um, it doesn't, maybe we won't come across the answer for very long, um, but there will be small achievable things that we can do. Um, and um, those will be the focus for the next steps. Do you have any concrete examples of where something could be changed through this policy, whether it's how people are using phraseology in their marketing, for example, or is there something where you could say, like, we've kind of stopped that from being part of the industry? 
Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple. So one is one example is we know that um, in the past, and this still happens, is that um, some member centres um, promote themselves on the basis that they only have teachers who are native English speakers. And now we've had a plenary at our last ELT conference, um, um, actually with your colleague Silvana. Silvana, who is amazing. Amazing, um, who, who, who led an incredible plenary, incredible response on that, um, and, um, and, and to that plenary about, um, I think it was, she called it the native factor. And um, she was talking about all of the reasons why actually the fact whether someone is or is not a native English language um, speaker does not really speak to their competence or as, as a teacher at all. Um, really super interesting and amazingly important session, I felt. Um, but we know that um, some people do continue to um, market themselves in this way, presumably because they feel that um, the market agent students respond well to it. And, and I guess we can all understand um, that point of view. And now sometimes we have... Um, in the moments when one centre might come to us and say, and this has happened recently, I pointed out that another member is doing this and saying they felt it's wrong, they shouldn't be happening, this is wrong. And obviously we have so many amazing teachers in our industry who are not native English language speakers, um, so many, and indeed directors of studies or owners of language schools who are like, and feel understandably upset um, and yet, we don't have anything within our rules which give up, make our position clear. Um, so it's not clear to everybody what the position is, and therefore we have people doing different things, which is causing upset. Um, now, I won't, don't want to preempt whatever um, the action group might discuss or might come up with, but I think in that kind of situation where the law of the land doesn't actually help us out. Um, English UK should have a position on this. It's a big topic. It's important. It's causing division in our community. Um, and we should be able to discuss it openly, respectfully, listen to each other's views. And in the end, we might not all agree, but we are a democracy and the overwhelm and the, and the consensus, the, the majority opinion will prevail and um, we should have a position on it. That's one clear example. Um, Another one is um, we know that um, if you work in marketing, you probably will have, or in any language school, in any position in fact, had experience of um, um, maybe a group leader or maybe a parent of a student or um, suggesting that they want a certain type of host family, for example. Yeah. Um, I think we've all known of instances where that's happened. And... and we probably aren't prepared for how to answer that. Um, and um, you want to do your best in your job, um, if your job is to, um, to satisfy your customers or to keep everybody happy or to um, sell your language school, then you have that as a, as a priority, but also you want to do the right thing in that situation. And maybe that we could help give guidance as to how you respond in that situation so that you feel prepared um, for what to say. You mean the, the request for an English host family, for yeah, example? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, um, and I think part of that is about um, educating through the languages that we use, the messages that we use, what the UK is in terms of its diversity, um, um, so that we get less of that, less of those kind of questions. But part of it is also being prepared and, and not being caught on the back foot when asked about that. And I think that type of guidance 
might be very helpful for people working in, in, the, in the English language teaching sector um, and, and for staff of English Ecom Member Centres. So I think that those kind of areas are, are, part, are things that we could address um, through this action group. It will be member-led, so I, again, I wouldn't want to preempt or determine exactly what will be discussed, but I think that those are areas where um, we might have discussions and, and hopefully come up with um, guidance or a policy or a position that in the end is, is helpful um, for the community that is the English UK membership. Yeah, and maybe also trying to learn collectively the language, the appropriate language to use, because I know that, it, like you said, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable topic, but it can also be really confusing or tricky to know the correct language when we're talking about anti-racism yeah. and everything, that it involves using the correct language and not inadvertently offending somebody um, and being able to talk about it more comfortably. Absolutely, absolutely. And we all know that this is important. With our, our plenary um, speaker at the Members' Conference in May, um, it was um, the diversity and inclusion champion for Adidas, previously worked at the Metropolitan Police, and his plenary spoke about how in the end, if you get this right, and essentially you get this right, you make um, your staff, your stakeholders, your customers, everybody feel part, feel included, feel like they belong. And he talked about the sense of belonging. Um, but in, if you get it right, then it, it, then ultimately that will be positive for your organisation. It'll be positive for your staff morale, for your team, for your productivity. Um, it will be um, the right thing um, for your business ultimately. Um, and, and that's what we want. Um, so, um, and, and, but it is difficult, you're right. And, um, and, and I think we may have made mistakes. In fact, I'm certain we've made mistakes in the plan that we have published. I'm certain that we'll have made mistakes in the survey. Um, I'm certain that we will make more mistakes going forward. And um, I guess we just have to be open to that. Uh, for me, I might find that uncomfortable because I don't like making mistakes. Um, and I find it's quite high risk because I think we will make errors. Um, but, um, but that's something that we have to be brave about and think, um, and, and people and we're open to correction um, because we're trying to do the right thing. So, and, and, and some members have written to me pointing out, you know, that, that they feel uncomfortable about this aspect or, the, or this part um, um, they're not sure about. And that's, totally, that's absolutely what you want. And in fact, the plan makes it clear that we invite feedback, not just through the survey, but at any point, because we, we will have made mistakes and gotten things wrong and we, we need to correct the path that we're going in. So absolutely, if anyone has feedback, then um, please do get in touch um, because we are 100% open to that. Yeah, these uh, discussions are happening in all aspects of society. There's one current now with the New Zealand football team um, who are called the All Whites, yeah. the rugby team's called the All Blacks, um, and it just dictates the colour of the kit. Sure. That's purely the reason why the All Blacks are called the All Blacks for rugby. The New, uh, New Zealand basketball team are called the Tall Blacks, um, uh, and the football team are the All Whites, purely because that's the colour of their kit. But there's a big discussion now um, as to whether that should be a viable name um, for, a, for a national football team as a nickname. Yeah even though the, the, the only reason they called it is to denote the nature of the kit, but there is a sense that that, that could be a, a pejorative term for some sure. people. So it is a tricky one. It is, it is. And I think that, I mean, Rekha, you asked earlier, like, why now? I mean, obviously, we were responded to what was going on around the world last summer, but also the, the, the pandemic and the fact that 
so much about the way that we live, the way that we work, the way that we're running our businesses has changed. Um, we have an opportunity to look at what we can improve and do things differently and better. And I think we have to take the opportunity. It's a once in a generation lifetime, hopefully this never happens again, um, you know, moment to look at where we can make improvements, um, whether as a sector um, we could do things differently and better. And I, I think that it's important that we do that. Time to update the concept of Englishness. Yes, indeed, indeed. Perhaps, there we go. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Definitely, um, really interesting and just really good to have so many people um, wanting to be engaged in this. Um, and I think that um, that is really positive. Yeah. So apart from steering uh, a membership organisation through the worst conditions um, the industry could possibly have created themselves if they had the opportunity to, to really think of ways in which they could ruin their businesses, um, what have you been doing personally um, outside of your steering of the English UK ship? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been working from home throughout the whole of, of when we've had to work from home, which has been an interesting experience, not something that I love that much. I like people and being with people. So, but one thing that has absolutely uh, saved me, I think, and, and saved my mental health is um, we adopted a dog, my boyfriend and I, from um, Cyprus, actually. And she arrived in a box off the last, one of the last planes to arrive from Cyprus into Gatwick. Um, just before the, the lockdown, the first lockdown started. So she's not a lockdown dog, I have to say, or a pandemic puppy, I think they're calling them. Um, mm. We had planned to get her, and we'd been to Cyprus um, in February last year, which is my last overseas trip, which is unbelievable, actually. That was the last time I got on a plane, so long ago. We went to Cyprus, visited all these rescue centres, met this dog, um, who was, at the time, very, very skinny, um, silly black dog, um, and we decided that she was the one um, and um, adopted her. And she was, yeah, on the last plane out of, of Cyprus um, that landed at Gatwick with animals on. Um, and there she was in this box, terrified. Um, and uh, she's been um, absolutely brilliant. So we've been having a dog, been able to get out, go for a walk every day. Um, and, um, and doing loads of dog training has just been a really good distraction from... Um, from everything that's been going on and, and just getting out and about from being at home. That's been brilliant. So she's been amazing. Um, and then at the same time, um, we bought very, just before the pandemic as well, lots of things just before the pandemic, uh, we bought a, um, a van, like a tradesman's van, um, with the idea of converting it into a mini camper, um, which again happened during um, lockdown, during that first lockdown that went on forever. Um, and again, a great distraction. So it was good when the um, DIY shops reopened and we were able to go and get all the supplies. And now it's um, uh, we have a great little camper van that um, we go off and um, explore the UK in. We haven't been overseas yet, although hopefully we will. Um, the dog absolutely loves it. Yotta is her name. It's a Cypriot name. We'll and put a picture of Yotta in the, yeah. in the links to the yes. podcast. Um, she's brilliant. She loves the van um, and uh, we have a great time. So that's been a really, um, a really good like, hobby to have on the side um, and um, keep everybody sane during the last 18 months. Well, good for you. Um, well... Thank you very much. Thank you, Jodie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been, um, yeah, really great to, to chat. 
it has been good to catch up and like you say you know face to face is so much different isn't it it's what we're used to and um it's good to hear that this will all be over by study world spring so yeah <laughs> we're looking Indeed. forward to seeing you there face to face hopefully hopefully and uh yeah despite my dog goes into the office with me but i'm yet to decide whether she can come to a conference i think she must because <laughs> people will be asking specifically to see her um i don't know if she's well behaved enough for that yet i have to keep going to the dog school seeing whether she can um, improve her manners a she, bit. She may be better behaved than some of the delegates. We'll like see. Sam. True. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm sure she'll be better than Sam. That is, that's <laughs> cut. Right. Thank you very much, Jodie. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks a lot. You can find out more about what we do at Bell by visiting our website at bellenglish.com.